Stand and deliver. Hello and welcome to the Stand and Deliver comedy podcast. Uh, my name is Rodders, or if you've received an email off me recently, Rodri. That's my real name. It seems weird uh, using my stage name when, when formally communicating with one via email. Uh, but what is this? Uh, I've got to remind myself because it's been so long since we've released an episode. It's the Stand and Deliver comedy podcast, which is a podcast bolted onto the Stand and Deliver Comedy Club, which is currently residing in Reading at our brand new shiny wonderful venue, The Biscuit Factory, an excellent independent cinema right in the middle of town. And uh, basically this is to give you a behind-the-scenes peek into the world of stand-up comedy, so you get to uh, vicariously live uh, through my life as a performer as well. And uh, yeah, so I interview either people who have played my club, or comedians that I've bumped into on the road who I find particularly fascinating. Uh, so our guest today, uh, I've been wanting to interview uh, this person for ages and I, I don't do interviews over Zoom or Skype, hence the podcast went down a black hole uh, for much of the last couple of years because uh, I don't think you get the same, same reactions and it's it's not, not as fun. Like um, You can do interviews remotely perfectly well but i do this mostly for fun and uh, i get the most out of an interview when i'm face to face with someone and I actually get to meet them and my guest this week is gavin webster who is a geordie comedian and i'm not up in newcastle very often it's quite a journey uh, therefore i needed to wait for our schedules and the stars to align before i could uh, chat to gavin webster it's fair to say that he is highly regarded amongst his peers a veteran of the comedy club circuit and uh, an all-round top bloke uh we talk about all sorts of things how he started in a double act uh how he um is suspicious of the term comedian and doesn't actually like it uh, that's an interesting one and we also talk about what is alternative comedy is there even such a thing anymore and uh, we also hear about his uh, podcast that goes out live every Saturday evening from midnight the comedy results it's one of those ideas uh, that I wish I'd blooming well thought of uh, but didn't Uh, so we've got that coming up to look forward to a nice in-depth interview with Gavin from a pub in Newcastle Uh, but firstly uh, I think I should probably tell you about what I've been up to it's been uh, so much has happened uh, since the last episode Um, I don't really know where to start I think most crucially Stand and Deliver is back and open, and uh, we're at the Biscuit Factory, which is an independent cinema I mentioned earlier. We had our our first show uh, last November, the 18th to be precise, and what a show it was. The performances take place in a real-life cinema screen, and it was a complete sellout. Lucas Jolson, uh, my uh, good friend and uh, business companion uh, Lucas Jolson he compared and was absolutely brilliant uh, I, I, you can always count on Lucas to uh, unleash boundless energy and enthusiasm and uh, I hadn't seen him compare for actually quite a few years so it was a, a pleasure to put him on my stage and uh, Robert White from Britain's Got Talent uh, was was there as well. And it's not the first time Robert White has performed at uh, Standard Deliver. We got him before he was famous. Just before he went on the television, uh, Robert White did ha- uh, headline at our old venue, Smoking Billies. And uh, fair to say, he's still as funny as he's ever been and uh, put on an absolutely top performance. And uh, I'll have to mention, let's mention the whole lineup. Paul Cox opened, brilliant opening, smashed it. 
Uh, then there was Alexis Coward, wonderful, local, brilliant, and Charlie Bowers with his uh, deadpan, misanthropic <laughs> delivery, which uh, gave the audience a lot to talk about. He, he, um, he, he uh, made them laugh but I think shocked quite a few of them with quite how dark some of his jokes were. And on the way uh, out into the main bar, as uh, we sent the audience off for their interval, we did hear quite a few debates uh, breaking out about Charlie's set. But good. I think comedy, sometimes it's meant to push the boundaries and, and make you think a little bit. That's not a bad thing, is it, to challenge an audience uh, once in a while. At least I don't think so. Uh, what else has been going on? I have been gigging as much as possible. What with the uh, news being unpredictable, I've really been trying to seize the day and get as many gigs as I can. You know, just uh, the worst should happen. Uh, within the last month or so, I've performed in Southampton, Oxford, Portsmouth, London and in Newcastle or Newcastle, uh, as as they call it. Uh, let's do this in no particular order. Um, Oxford. What what a what a strange town, uh, or city, or, or whatever it's classed as. I always find Oxford audiences are are a bit peculiar. Uh, in in the pubs and the clubs, they're either very posh or rough as heck, and there's nothing in between. Uh, we had an awful lot of uh, drunk students in at the uh, last uh, Oxford gig I did. I was compare for the evening, and uh, I was heckled by a student uh, but the way in which they heckle is, is so bizarre and I, I thought it sounded like a formal debate so I treated the heckle as if it were a, a formal debate at the Oxford Union I, I've put a clip up on my uh, YouTube and on, on my Facebook I, th- I thought it was worth sharing I just type in Rodder spell RH and it, it should come up I, I thought it was worth one, it's one of those nights where I knew something was going to happen so I set my camera up at the back of the room just in case and uh, yeah I'm glad I did I'm glad I captured at uh, the moment where heckling and posh Oxford debating uh, met in a, a a marriage of comedic fun, uh, shall we say. Um, and uh, let's talk about Newcastle then. Um, what a city. I was there on holiday uh, with my girlfriend Jordan because, well, we were meant to be in New York and we got very concerned that it would get red listed and we'd be stuck in America enormous expense because the rules were changing literally hourly I, i'd sat down and spent two hours writing down all the various things and paperwork we had to do like pcr tests all that lot and by the time i'd finished writing it they'd, they'd changed the rules so I was, we were like ugh, sod it let's go to newcastle it's still new i mean everyone in newcastle uh um intimidates me and is very hard to understand so it's exactly like being in the bronx um, no, no difference whatsoever and i had a wonderful time in newcastle i was there for just under a week and i had a gig the first night i was there uh, i on the thursday i was performing at the giggle water comedy night at the prohibition cabaret bar on pink street what a lovely venue small intimate great drinks really nice audience but i did find i know this was a recurring theme uh they they struggle i I do not have an issue understanding the geordie accent i I don't think they're hard to understand at all they really struggled to i guess what would you call my accent other than posh receive pronunciation i guess that there were instances where people really struggled to understand me i was in a uh, a cafe and I, i asked for the bill and the waiter just went i i'll get you some milk i was like what uh, and in the and when I was performing my set, um, there was a uh, a woman 
who would lean over and repeat what I was saying to her friends, like she was sort of translating uh, from posh into Geordie, which I found a bit odd, because although you may not like my accent, you may be indifferent, but I thought it was at least clear. But I, but I guess accents are all about what you're most used to hearing. Um, <laughs> well, maybe I've, I'm not actually as well-spoken as I think I am, and I've got some peculiar impediment that makes me hard to understand. I do say washing machine wrong, apparently, I've been told. <laughs> so, and when I was at the club, I thought I would... Do a gig report. I used to do these on the podcast where I'd just get my recorder out of my bag and I'd have a good old chat and try and sum up uh, the um, essence of, of the night, basically. And Newcastle's comedy scene, after obviously being stopped because of lockdowns, is having a real resurgence. So just after I got off stage uh, during the interval, I had a good old catch up with Rachel and Stu, who run Giggle Water Comedy at the Prohibition Cabaret Bar in Newcastle. This is the Stand and Deliver Comedy Podcast with Rodders. I've just got off stage and what a lovely night. It's an interesting venue. It's a very nice venue. It's a Prohibition Cabaret Bar. Um, my friend Mitch Mitchell, it's a lovely name. Uh, has it can't be a real name, surely. Well, it is their name. <laughs> um, and, but this used to be the Jazz Cafe many years ago. And this was the first place I ever came drinking when I was 18 years old. Because my, originally my boyfriend used to work here. And now I don't live in Newcastle, I live in London. And I come all the way back to do these gigs now and again, when I can. Oh, amazing. Yeah. I loved how you dropped character. You pretended to be a posh southerner, and now you've gone Geordie. This, <laughs> is, this is the real me. Oh, the mask has slipped. The mask has slipped. Well, I'm not on stage. When I go back on stage, I will be Harold Donald Foreman. Hard on for men for short. Excellent. And yes. you, you basically do all the work when he turns up. Like, <laughs> yeah. The actual, whereas he just swans in off the train late and you, I guess, set the old gig up? Pretty much. Yeah. Personality trait is just constantly nugget. But to be fair, like, um, it's not just me who does this. Like, we do get, fr- like, we get help from um, Kelly, who you met before, and there's another guy called Michael who helps us out. Kind of just comes in and oversees things. So there's essentially, like, four of us to make sure this night runs, essentially, so it's not all piled onto one person. But this kind of started by accident, this, mm. this whole thing, because um, we did a thing called Ultra Stand Up Comedy mm. uh, for charity about two years ago before the lockdown, and uh, we would had, like, one gig with about 300 people at the stand, stand. and, uh, and it, was, it was amazing. And then I was like, do we want to do this again? And I was like, but I don't fucking live here. So we did. So mainly I do getting, getting the acts on. Stu, there wouldn't be a gig if you didn't know Mitch. So obviously no venue, no gig. I get people on. Kelly oversees, Michael oversees. Occasionally does some MC work as well. And just make sure it all goes smooth. That's good you all share, because the mantle of promoter is a very heavy burden for one person to to bear. I enjoyed it tonight. When I got it, I thought, where's where's comedy taking place? And the bartender just pointed to the corner. I thought, oh, God, it's in the main bar. It's going to be carnage. People wandering off the street. They won't care. But they wandered in off the street, and they... Cared, so they must have known it was going on because that's a risk running a gig in a main bar. Well, no, it's like well down south. Uh, I've, de- I've done gigs where it's very similar, like structural setup. Mm. People just walk into the bar if they don't know it's comedy on, they don't care mm. and they just talk and it just becomes a bun fight. So I kind of gave up doing gigs unless they had separate rooms down south. But do people know it's on? How to how do well, people just nicer up here than t- down in London? Well, that's the thing. We did get um, voted. 
friendliest people in the UK, which I'm still a bit sceptical about because I've been alive. It's relative though, isn't it? I guess you need to travel the... Uh, I've been to Sheffield. They are nice. Like, mm. they, I just, I usually go down to Sheffield, I get free drinks just on entry. You know? <laughs> Maybe they just like drinking, but we handle it better because we have a good, like, you know, good drinking culture. But um, to be fair, we have had gigs where two homeless, like, meth heads have just walked into the <laughs> venue before and we've all been like, yeah, they're welcome. Go on, but even but like you know, obviously for principal's sake, bar staff have to tell them no, no, you can't do drugs in here, so and just everyone else just like oh, oh, let him in, let him in. But we came to see the posh character act. <laughs> That's your fans again no, getting in trouble. They just turned up. Hurrah. So what, what's the scene like in Newcastle? I guess it's recovering after everything being funny was illegal for a bit. <laughs> Well, yeah, um, we got this gig, but we also have like sort of um, other things that go on separate from this. Uh, there's Felt Note. They run a bunch of gigs around Newcastle, Gateshead and Sunderland. Um, some up in Whitley Bay as well. It's going really well. It was a thing that was created during lockdown by comedians when they saw their bank balance go from great to the minus. Mm-hmm. And they didn't want to be homeless, so they no. created this thing uh, during lockdown. First is online gigs. And then they could still get like a sustainable income. It's now obviously gone beyond that. They're doing regular shows around the northeast, and they're basically trying to get on like as many people as they can, supporting, you know, small-time comedians and the big comedians, and making sure people are entertained. Oh, fantastic! Well, thanks so much for the spot tonight, and uh, yeah, best luck with the rest of your gigs. This is the Stand and Deliver Comedy Podcast. That was Rachel and Stu. Cheers for the spot. Uh, Do check out their night on Instagram. Just look for Giggle Water Comedy. Uh, Again, a great time was had by all, and I'm uh, I'd love to come back. Hint, hint. Right, I suppose it's about time we got our guest on. I decided to meet Gavin Webster in his natural habitat, the pub. We met in a pub that was between Heaton and Biker. Biker as in Biker Grove fame. And uh, we talked about all things comedy. So this is Gavin Webster. This is the Stand and Deliver Comedy Podcast. When when and where was your first gig? And was it was it around this area? It was uh, probably in between. It was in... Uh, uh, well, actually, the first time I got up on... A double act was because um, starting double act was in Baker, which isn't far from where we are now, which is just down the road and down towards the the, the valley, the Oosburn Valley, Baker at the Cumberland Arms. But the first time I got up on stage in own right was in the um, the Barley Moor, which is a which was a pub in Gateshead, which is just over the river, but that's actually being pulled down now. There you are. So when you say a double act, what sort of thing was it? Because you just you just don't see double acts anymore, does it? I guess people don't want to split the fees. Yeah, that's that's why double acts don't don't uh, happen really because the, the the you have to pay you just you just get the one fee and you have to split it. Um, we um, no, it was because a friend of me, well, somebody I knew from the past asked me to do some comedy. I didn't really. W- Want to do it, but he, he said, I've got a name for it. We're going to be a double act, and we're called Scarbrat and Thick. You know, like Mortman Wise, Scarbrat and Thick. There, I asked, which one were you? I was Thick, I was the uh, I was the straight man, if you like. I, he'd written it all, and I had all them straight straight men lines, you know, like, really? Did you? When did that happen? Why? A mouse? What? You know, that kind of thing, you know, like uh, the, the the Peter Glaze type lines, that's a bit pr- probably before your time, but you know what I mean? Uh, the, um, the the straight man lines to the funny man. 
So was it a whole script that had to be memorised and then performed verbatim, or was there a bit of ad Yeah, it was that's, sort of well, that's what scares me about wanting to do double acts. scripted, act. very scripted indeed. Oh, is that... Oh, sorry, just um, distracted by the football. Their hearts nearly scored, and then Rangers went on a break, and they nearly scored. Um, the, um, yeah, it was very scripted. It was very scripted, and he, he, he gave me all these lines, and... It, it wasn't very good, but to be fair, it was my first time up on stage, so it wasn't very, uh, wasn't very good. You know. well, that gave you a taste, and that that made you want to go and do like a solo performance, or I suppose so. Yeah, we had a few goes at it, and I didn't really want to do it because I didn't really know much about stand up and didn't wasn't really interested in it. And then, um, and then the um, we we did a few that that year, nineteen ninety two. And then, um, then he said, "Oh, we're opening a club as in a, as in a, a night. We're opening a monthly comedy night, and that was in February of 1993. And uh, I um, did the, um, I did a, a small five-minute spot on my own, but I was still called Little Ernie Thick at the time. And that, I thought the best thing I can do is, if I want to carry on with this, I need to ditch this name because it's part of a double act, which isn't working." And then I, uh, later that year, called myself my real name, which is Gavin Webster, which is my name I was christened with. <laughs> and um, and that was... Uh, and the person that I started with, not long after that, packed in. So it was on my own. And that was, that was like, straight stand-up? It was, like, one-liners, jokes, that, that? Yeah, yeah. He gave us the lines for the first one, uh, which worked quite well, actually. It was all right. And then uh, did a few thing did a few things with them together on the first couple of nights, and then then um, gradually started to do things of my own. Had my own ideas, my own jokes and things, uh, and uh, I suppose it evolved from there really and was that all at this night you were running with your with your well, friend yeah it was it was sort of it was that night but there was there's a few other little bits and pieces at the time but mm. it wasn't like what it is now where it's all quite a big industry but there was a few bits and pieces in pubs in different bars rooms above pubs and things like that did the odd gig and people says oh i'm putting a show on here do you want a spot none of these were paid mm. just um little little uh five minute spots here and ten minute spots there and uh, didn't get that many at first then it sort of dipped a bit more and had to finish my course I was doing a, I was at poly, polytechnic that's another old fashioned word doing an engineering course and I finished that and then I was sort of on the door and so was doing it then when I could but didn't do it didn't do it uh, I wasn't doing it regularly though I wasn't doing it um, every night or every every couple of nights or anything like that it was uh, it was a long time before that happened. How did it work back then in terms of the where did people, the comics, go to make their money? Were there were big clubs? Everyone sort of hubbed around at the, like the weekend clubs, or because now it seems like it's all in a bit of disarray. There's science seems to be far more open mics than paid gigs, and now there's more comics than there are I don't know, rats in the sewers, and yeah. it's, it's all ridiculously competitive and oversubscribed. What was how different was it? Before, because you still said you had to do lots of open spots in order to, to cut your teeth. Well, I suppose it was open spots in terms of like to learn how to do it. You could you could have charged money and got people to come and do your own night. You were putting your own nights on because 
that was the kind of thing. People were just putting their own nights on, independent nights on, and asking for a couple of people to do spots. But it was, it was like you see, it wasn't like what it is now, oversubscribed. People didn't really know what it was in them days. Um, and, uh, you know, in, I heard this great story from Alexi Sale that him and Tony Allen went up to the Edinburgh Fringe in about 1980, and they had to explain what it was they were doing because people didn't understand the concept of stand-up comedy. Can you believe that? It's weird because now it's people don't understand. As you go to Edinburgh and you're doing anything other than comedy, people raise an eyebrow. <laughs> that seems to be it's the Edinburgh Comedy Festival really now, isn't it? Exactly, exactly. It's, it's gone sort of not full circle but half circle. It's, it's a total flip in 40 years um, because they, obviously they understood what comedians were. These were these... these bow-tied, besuited blokes on television that did sort of um, mother-in-law jokes and things. And then, obviously, you had the folk circuit, like Billy Connolly and, and Jasper Carrot and all that, and uh, Mike Harding and people like that, that that were doing little stories in between the folk music, but they weren't really even classed as comedians. So the idea of people doing an hour of just talking about, you know, um, talking about philosophy and... and psychology and, and, and then talking about obviously um, satire and stuff like that. that apparently him and Tony Allen had to explain what the night was because they said well what, is it not a play or is it not a you know and, <laughs> and when you monologue. think exactly exactly that's so it's some sort of prose I, or something I guess that's a birth of the, what, the so-called alternative comedy oh. and now I don't know what you would call alternative comedy because yeah. everyone if you're going to, from the 80s definition everything that isn't just one-liners would be classed as alternative but I guess to do alternative now, you have to do really far out surrealism, which would probably then stop being comedy and become performance art at some point. Absolutely, yeah, that's that's exactly how it is. Because it, what is alternative? Um, the um, it sort of suffered for its success, really, because what what started off as an inverted commas alternative became the mainstream, and now you've got young people being brought up just thinking that this is comedy and. and Another thing I got reminded of the other day was an old comic said that um, that uh, back in the days of alternative comedy, they would do anything to not describe themselves as a comedian. They would say they were not an, an artist or a or a performance poet or a performance this or a performance that. They wouldn't call themselves. Was well, that viewed as pretentious by people around them, or did they just not care? I they? think they didn't want to be tarred in the same brush as being called a comedian in the mm. same way as like Bernard Manning or, or one of these like. Well, you know, these racist, sexist, homophobic ones from the 80s. Again, the Dickie Bowtie Brigade. So they didn't want to be called a comedian. Because even, even myself, even at the age I am, and I'm not as old as the sort of alternative people, and I wasn't around when they were around in the 80s, but I still balk at the word comedian because it, it always, it always um, to me... It, it, has connotations. Yeah, it has, yeah. has a mainstream feel about a comedian, and, and it's all a bit... And I always think a lot of people like... The, see themselves as a comedian and I'm, I don't know, I'm, I'm torn a bit because to me a comedian is somebody who tells jokes really and when people call themselves a comedian you go, yeah but you don't I'm not having a go at anybody in particular yeah, but hmm. you th- I think you don't say anything funny you're just doing a <laughs> TED talk you're not a comedian as such you know, I, I don't I never thought they were in my gang the TED talk people and the, the hmm. people who do you know, an hour which is very touching or whatever, it's just not, I don't get that because it's maybe it's the age I am. I, I say a comedian is Tommy Cooper or something like that. Even uh, even um, somebody like Dave Chappelle, right at the end of his uh, at the end of his his set, he does this rant about how he he he, he, 
you know, he he, he 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 got accused of being transphobic, and he had this. He, I don't know if you've seen it. He does this big rant at the end about how he wasn't, and he and you know, and and the trans people he knows aren't the, the, the these these idiots, these sort of um, these kind of. Um, uh, radical idiots don't speak for the trans people he knows and he gets a big round of applause off the crowd and he, I remember thinking I can't ever imagine Tommy Cooper doing that or, or, or you know or Morecambe and Wise or something because I don't even think that's a comedian that's just somebody who's a bit of a public speaker if you know I, I, I mean. feel that way about when you see comedians trying to be very political and by that they will get a round of applause because they've said something yeah. that the room broadly agrees with like we need more social housing then everyone cheers I'm going like well you're cheating that's not how you're meant to elicit that response. That's not the rules. You're meant to... As, I think however you get to a laugh, that doesn't matter. But I think there's got to be... Because isn't that the best thing about stand-up? It's, it's really simple and easy in the fact that you need to elicit a laugh. If you don't do that, you know you're doing it wrong and you know what to, what to change. Whereas if you go into this weird world of like the Edinburgh where you have to have a narrative arc and people who don't really want to feel obliged to shoehorn these stories in whereas like yeah. I guess the American comics feel much more their idea of a special is just a lot of like four club sets bolted together mm-hmm. yeah. like yeah. there's got to be something like, like I love a storyteller mm-hmm. but there's got to be something in between I would say so too yeah it, it's not it's um it's, there's no problem if it if it if it's got a polemical edge, but it's funny as well. You know, like if you read somewhere something like the Viz, which gets regarded as just a toilet rag, which it has been for years, but it's it's always had like great polemical connotations to it. You know, the letter like, section is getting that. absolutely, but they almost tell you a story. Like like I remember was it one of the letters? Funny enough, was saying uh, teachers instead of ha- having a strike during the term time. Why don't you have a strike on the three days before the new term starts when you're getting the new curriculum ready? That'll really hurt them. And that's a really that's a really good political driven joke, as in they do fuck all really, you know. And but it's a good cynical joke, but it's made us laugh. So to me, there's no excuse for people ranting and raving and not having a joke at the end of their you know, doing an editorial at the end of the set, but there's no joke to it because that's a really good joke, but it's done in a in a funny way, if you know what I mean. I guess there's got to be a market for it, isn't it? But I, I guess there's a big difference to the people that go to your, I don't know, the stand in Newcastle and sit there and watch the, the comedians there to the sort of people who would go and buy tickets to a fringe show or a, or a theatre. Ah, yeah, and I, I know what you mean because if you do a sportsman's dinner, which is that's what they're called, by the way, I haven't dubbed them that. You, you sometimes get an audience. A lot of them are blokes. There's some women as well, but it's a, it's a blokey crowd who are supporting their local football team or something or whatever. And they're, and you're doing a night, and they're really bright and they they like intelligent stuff and they're laughing at really clever things. But then at the end of it, they come up and they shake your hand and they go, "Oh, I saw you at another dinner and you were great." And then we'll see you again at another dinner. They wouldn't dream of going to the theatre. Mm. But they're just as intelligent as some theatre goers, you know what I mean? They're just as bright and they're just as, and they'll laugh just as much at interesting humour. But they won't go. They'll just go to another dinner that's yeah. on that you happen to be at. And same with the comedy club people. I've been to comedy clubs where people have gone. I saw you here seven years ago, and I've come back and I've fetched me family because I knew you were on. And you think that was on the theatre last month? Why didn't you go there? But. That's what people are like, unfortunately. Uh, but when you're doing the, say, the, the the closing twenties or what have you at the stand, and you're doing your you did the time theatre. Mm-hmm. Once the time theatre show, 
an extended club set, or did you have to, in order to fill that amount of time, did you have to put more of a story in? Yeah, I put, I put, I wrote a lot of stuff in the year, did them on a thing. On, I call them TED Talks, but I put them up on Facebook in the year on the comedian page. Call them TED Talks. Do five minutes of new material. So. I put all there and I did a little bit of club stuff, but mainly material that I'd put together. Stuff that I'd, I'd play, play the ukulele and the guitar and things and do s- songs. So, um, and, and I had a lot, a lot of other set pieces that I haven't done in the clubs. And I don't think I'll be able to do in the clubs because you only get 20 minutes in the clubs. Um, and it's not really conducive to the, the club night. But they come to see me, so I'd put a lot of different... Uh, different bits and pieces in so you'd get to see that in the theatre that you wouldn't get to see in the uh, in the clubs but it's cl- of a club style though it's still crash bang wallop five gags a minute because that's how I work that's mm. how I do it really but I guess you've got because they're they're settled in because they know you're there for an hour there's more of a tension span yes. and leeway there I guess for doing something a bit more I, I don't know <laughs> what's a more polite way of saying long winded more well, nuanced self, like, maybe self, more stuff self in it indulgent yeah. really self indulgent I think is the right word you know because if you might do a long list or you do something from a list, or you do something, you explain something, a concept, and you do it. You may not get that length of time in a club, because as you see that, as you see, I haven't come to see you as such. But you may get a chance to spread your wings a bit and do something. Yeah, I think self-indulgence is probably the best, the best word, because they allow you that indulgence. You know, like they wouldn't allow you in a, in a club. But how often do you? Do you compare rather than doing doing the spots? Because a, a lot of comics I speak to that I ever absolutely love comparing, or they avoid it like the plague and they're really not into it. And the, the, the snobbiest thing I heard about it, I was, I was in Oxford of all places, and somebody said, "Oh, I, I don't regard uh, compares as or MCs as, as comedians. They're, they're, I think they're more entertainers." Uh, and I just thought, "What the hell? It's like it's such an important job. It's bolting the comedy show together." And they help you get the laughs before you've even got on stage. Yeah. <laughs> like, what, what's your feeling about about comparing? Do, is it something you enjoy? Or yeah, I quite like comparing. I, I, I compared a lot at first because nobody else would. So, so you, this is in the early days of this, of, of, like what we were talking about before in the circuit when it was a bit more innocent than what it was now, when there was less comics. So they would say lots of comics would say, "Well, I don't want to compare," and, I, and I'd say, "Well, I'll compare." And then you get quite early-ish on in me. Career, like by the late nineties, and I hadn't been hadn't been on the national circuit for very long. I'd been there since about ninety six, but by ninety eight, I was comparing the glee because a lot of people wouldn't compare. You know, ninety eight, ninety nine, two thousand. I was bedded well in as a compare there because, and then for a while, it's hard to shake that off because they go, well, he'll compare. Um, so would compare places like that. But then, then you do a set later on, and, and the, if you do a really good set, they go, well, can't have him comparing. You know, we'll have to have them doing a set. You know, I wonder what the hesitancy is when, whenever I turned it down. Is it that people don't like having to do the ad lib because it's more more pressure, or maybe they don't feel they're having as much fun because they they sort of, you know, they're setting the night up, they're getting it together, they start doing quite well, then they're going to bring an act on. I find when I compare, I do find it more fun in the respect that it's it's more pressure because you can really ruin a night if it goes wrong mm-hmm. or if you, your crowd work goes wrong. But it is less pre- pressure because you've got more space. And I know mm-hmm. if I dig myself into a hole, I've got time to ad lib out of it. Mm-hmm. Whereas if I mess up a ten spot, there's kind of no coming yeah. back from that. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I've seen I've seen people who are sort of compares and they get like themselves a spot. 
maybe a maybe a half spot, or they may have even got an opening spot. And because they're such a combat, the the combat goes on, and then they go on, they carry on comparing, and you go, no, you're not really in combat mode. Now. Yeah, mm. you think you shouldn't really be doing that now. The crowd want to hear some material now, and you're not doing that. You're still mining the same holes that the other person has asking people where they're from and you go no that's what the company did before that so you don't you don't do that you know so when and how did it come around the moment you thought oh actually I can start making a living living from all, all this um, about um, about 96 I think started getting more and more spots where you were closing and getting more and more money in bigger clubs and and then in 97, I just about went full-time at the beginning of 97, but it was towards the end of 97, I actually went full-time. I just, uh, packed in my casual job doing at a car hire company, driving car hire cars to deliver them to people's doors. That was my job for Eurodollar. It doesn't even exist now. I think it got took over by National or something. But, yeah, I used to deliver car, um, hire cars to people's doors. And about the back end of '97, I realised that I could just about get a living. Um, me and me then girlfriend, who I'm still with now, um, in early '97, um, uh, made a decision like, well, look, I will, she was working and all that. And I said, well, I'll, I'll not. I think I've got just enough money to to get a few little spots here and there to to just to be able to make a living out of it and it was the best thing I did really even though I wasn't, probably wasn't ready by about a year or so but started to do it full time then in 97 was, um, I, think, I think definitely nowadays it's easier to get spots in terms of practising because there's open mics at the end of every street in every yes. major city but I, I wonder if it's harder now to get the paid stuff just because the volume of comics was it the other way around when you were because were, nowadays you, it'd be quite rare for somebody to say oh I started getting a lot of paid work but I wasn't quite ready because normally it takes a couple of years for mm. acts now to, to break into even getting a bit of petrol money that's right it's sort of formulaic isn't it because now, uh, because now without any hard and fast rules uh, uh, an officialdom of an industry started now isn't it so there's almost like there's almost written rules as to how you do it you have to do so many open spots and then do this you know it's a bit like how um you know, when people learned to drive in the 1940s and 50s and things, my mother and father, who are long dead now, but they learned to drive in... God, when they learned to drive? Maybe my dad learned to drive in the late 40s and my mother learned to drive in the early 1950s. Now, I think my father had a friend of the family teach him to drive or something. Who, and then my mum had somebody, another friend of the family teach them to drive and they'd driven in the army or something. There was no such thing as a driving school... You know, but nowadays people go, oh, yes, you have to go with the, the BSM are quite good, but then you could you could go with a local one, and we know this other one, and there's all, all of them all over the country, isn't there, driving schools, and you have to have 30 lessons before they take you to another thing, and then you do the theory, and the theory's separate, but um, you really need to be going there because that's such and such a suburb, it's a good place to learn. And now you've seen the driving test being like, it's turned into an industry in its own right, hasn't it, driving lessons? And I feel it's a bit like that in comedy, how at first it was a bit unofficial. Somebody would teach you how to, you'd learn on the, you'd learn on the hoof, you'd do it, you'd pick it up, you'd do your own gigs. Then a big club would go, we hear you're quite good, do you want to do some, uh, some gigs for us? And the London circuit was a big thing, there was only about two or three big agents. And they'd go, yeah, would you like some gigs off us? Because we're hearing quite good things about you. That was it, really. It was quite innocent. Whereas now, 
it's the opposite, isn't it? It's so big, the network is so huge, and it's become an industry in its own right, isn't it? Because there's so many comics, you have to, like... There's almost... They're looking for reasons not to book a lot of people, because they'll have a gong show, and, like, say you'll, you'll go on, I don't know... Um, just the creek, the blackout, which is like a gong show. Only they turn the lights off. Uh, so, 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 like I know people who have won the gong show, or won the blackout twice, and written to them and gone like, "Well, where's me me paid spot?" And like they go, "Oh, well, you can come back and do the gong show again." Like, well, I don't want to. Like, <laughs> so it's almost like this. It doesn't matter. Sometimes you can you can be blooming brilliant, but there just aren't any. And like with my club, I get I only run I, I run, uh, run monthly, so I've only got five spots a month to give away, mm-hmm. um, and I use one up comparing myself sometimes. Mm-hmm. So it's like I get loads of acts who are easily good enough, but there's just not enough room. Although I'm not a sod enough to make them go for a gong show again. Yeah, <laughs> I know what you mean. I mean, I suppose it was always like that to an extent. You know, in a smaller scale, people would say, "Look, yeah, you're too good to be an open spot, but I can't book you, mate." Some people would say that to me. You're at certain clubs because they book two headliners to swap over at their clubs and things like that. So, yes, it would be a case of um, it's always been like that to an extent, but I think it's obviously it's augmented now, isn't it? And as I say, there's an industry in its own right. There's an open spot industry, isn't there? And there's, a, there's industries within industries. But perversely, comedians don't get paid as much money on the circuit now as what they used to. No. It's much harder because I can see it from both sides because you've got the book, the comedy side of things, and it is really hard. To, the budget doesn't go very far, especially if you want to give everybody something. And I think audiences are also conditioned to get everything for for free or, or very very little. You've got to be really careful how much you charge because people turn their nose up. Do you anything. Think that's a modern, modern day culture because the young people want to hear records for nothing, don't they, these days? I think so. I, I think it's also a lot of promoters don't have the guts to ask for money for what's entertainment. Like you get an awful. It seems to be a London thing. A lot of free nights, um, and like I, I guess it happens world over. But there's a there's an awful lot of free nights. Like I think it's because uh, they're worried that if they charge money, they'll actually have to deliver something decent. Whereas like you should book the best people you can afford, and just have faith that comedy is a good thing to put on. <laughs> yeah, maybe that's to do with competition as well, isn't it? it, it, it sometimes competition. This is a Thatcherite thing, isn't it? Competition that feels good, but sometimes competition drives things downwards and makes makes the product worse because people want it for nothing. And uh, as a result, but then what is a bad product? What, what is what is bad and what is good? Because I sometimes I would argue that it's a controversial thing to say, but I would argue that very boring white male twenty thirty something comedians all doing observations is is not a very good night and I don't think it's worth 15 pounds personally speaking I think if you if you're paying for something you want you want to see something a bit different maybe people would want to go and see say you know somebody like David O'Doherty he like does music doesn't he and he does little songs and all that people have paid because they want to see that so that's why they go and see him it's something a little bit different whereas like a lot of again um, observational comedians unless they're very very good they're a bit ten a penny I think you know they're a bit well you know is that any better than what I could have thought of with my friends down the pub you know what I mean it's not 
I do wonder because I, I think do that comedy well it's really difficult mm-hmm. but I also think the bar is lower than being a one-liner comic exactly. and, I, and I think if someone forced me to become a one-liner comic I'd really 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 struggle to get a, a set together because my brain doesn't work that way yeah. so I, I think in some ways it, it is easier to do observations yeah I think so I think so I think you're absolutely right there because to do, observational comedy is one of them ones that like um, there's a lot of glamour in it it's like being the lead singer or the centre forward or something like that it's, it's, you do get it's the glory position people love it especially if you're hanging on your every word it looks quite um, it's quite sexy it's quite sort of like oh he's cool but it's done badly so many times and when it's done badly it, to me it's, it's awful it's, it's, I can't even look at it when, it when it's bad it's poor and there's a, unfortunately there's a lot of poor observational comedians out there are very ordinary ones you know where you go yeah yeah it's alright but it's not amazing and it's quite I think it's the easiest one to do it's like it's like it's like learning Mozart as opposed to Rachmaninoff you know you, 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 you learn it it's, it's the one that the, the tutor would teach you first of all here's some observation. if you walk past the school music department you'll always hear smoke on the water being played out the window <laughs> exactly yeah that's the smoke on the water of, of stand up is observations you know like um, you know you'd see what 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 grinds your gears? I don't know. Um, fuck. The people who hog the middle lanes in um, on the motorway. Right. Why you get angry about that? Say that. And then somebody could give you a couple of jokes. And, and it's almost like getting cheers because they agree with you. Yeah, yeah, than yeah. That. Recognition, yeah. But to me, it's like, again, the best observational comics are phenomenal. I think they're really good. And, and I'm a... I'm not a snob, I think I think they're great at that. I really think they're terrific to watch, but there's so many poor observational comics out there, I think. Yeah, well, we've got to touch on the on the comedy results, because uh, oh, yeah. uh, not being up north too often, that's where I heard, heard from you first, before watching your, your sets and stuff on did YouTube. You, where did you hear about the comedy results? It just came up on Facebook, and I, it was just one of those annoying things where I thought, why the hell didn't I think of that? Because like, <laughs> I, because I, I used to work full-time in radio. Did you? Uh, I, I've done phone-in shows, I've done oh, all, yeah. all sorts of, like, um, like, and, yeah, a lot of music radio and that sort of yeah. stuff, so I was kind of... I was radio through and through from when I first started, uh, when I first students I got out of university. Yeah, yeah. So to just like, so for people who haven't, haven't heard it yet, how do, you, how, do you, how do you sum it up? It's like night owls for comics, really, isn't it? <laughs> I suppose it could be a, um, a, a focus group. Oh, there's a fate, fate broken out in the football now. It's terrific. Um, I'm getting football country as well. <laughs> sorry, I'll, I'll, it's all right. I'll focus on this now. We, um, okay. The. Uh, well, it's it's a sort of results service and uh, results and reporting service for the comedy community at midnight on a Saturday night, stroke Sunday morning, where people will ring up and tell us how their gigs went, or punters can ring up and tell us how the gigs that they've watched went, and uh, but it descends into chatting about comedy in general, and um, a lot of anecdotes come out. And the great thing is, a lot of comics are a bit the worse for wear when they ring. <laughs> I tend not to be, because I'm normally... I'd, the most exciting ones, really, are the ones on the road, where I just pull over in a service station. <laughs> on a lay-by. Yeah, the lay-by. A classic lay-by episode where the police move you on. <laughs> oh, well, you, we listened to that one, yeah, yeah. Uh, the, um, that was in um, uh, Leeds, yeah. He was, out, he, was out, he was walking the dog, he was walking the Alsatian. Or maybe in the Spaniel, I don't know, because the Spaniels are the drug ones, aren't they? Um, but, yes, he was... Um, I've uh, had a few moments like that, weird moments, in the middle of the night, 
Um, so, sorry, officer, I'm just doing a radio show for my car. Like, I, I did say podcast because I think in a, in a weird, in a, in a wanky way, the police will be aware of that now, wouldn't they? Oh, he's just doing a podcast. They've probably got their own industry podcast, haven't they? The exactly. policing pod or yeah, the, yeah. the plod pod. Yeah, yeah, I'll copyright that. Yeah, that's really good. Well done. I could steal that. <laughs> um, <laughs> the plod pod. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, obviously they do. They've always worked on the radio system, haven't they? But yeah, didn't it probably just looked quite normal to him? Imagine if somebody was doing that thirty years ago; they would have thought I was in the IRE or something like that, you know. Yeah, you'd need more kit, so it would be a bomb scare, wouldn't it? Yeah, exactly. Stuff, yeah, and... yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, so yes, so so the, the most exciting ones are them ones. They're doing the doing them on the laybys in the middle of the night, and uh, some comics are at home and they're obviously having a drink. Oh, they're on the train pissed and things like that. That's always, that's always funny. Well, I, I find good about it. Well, I, I phoned in when I was stuck outside Slough for hours and hours and hours. And what I like about it is that it's kind of comedy, can, especially when you're gigging somewhere on your own and you get stuck somewhere mm-hmm. and it's very late. Mm-hmm. You sometimes think, oh, why am I doing this? This is really, really stupid. Mm-hmm. Whereas you put on this, this uh, podcast radio show thing and there's other idiots in cars stuck yeah. in the middle of nowhere and you think, well, I'm not mad for doing this because it's a legitimate thing. <laughs> Look, people are out and they guess yeah, what? Some of them have even had a good evening. solidarity, isn't it, really? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Because it's a bizarre job that we do and we do need, I sometimes think we need a bit of support. Um, because it's a quite a lonely job. So it is a support line. It's like because because um, people just outside don't don't really like they think you're you're mad. Like I even I met my girlfriend at a comedy club. Did you? And uh, um, like so she's always she always comes to my comedy club and has helped me run it and uh, do the meetings of the venues and stuff. So she's really involved and sees more of comedy than than most people. Mm-hmm. But even she, will think, well, this is mad. Like well, you're going to Portsmouth on a Tuesday, and sometimes she'll come along. Cause she said, well, I haven't got work tomorrow. But if I'd worked tomorrow, there's no way I'd be doing this. It's stupid. Like, <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, we, we, when I when I was working at first doing it, I would I would um, be falling asleep. Um, not when I was doing the driving job. I was doing a uh, uh, um, oh, what they called on the phones. Um, uh, it was big in the nineties. Phone jobs. Um, uh, yeah, call centre. I was working a call centre briefly and. I'll be falling asleep at my desk and uh, I once passed a post-it note to the kid that was sitting in the next booth and I went, what have these towns got in common? And it was um, something like Manchester, Bury, Bolton, um, Staley Bridge, Leeds, Middlesbrough, Sunderland, Newcastle, South Shields. Um, I says, what have these towns got in common? And he went, I don't know. I went, I've been to them all today <laughs> because because <laughs> the bus left Manchester, the the eleven thirty bus or something, uh, midnight bus left there and got back first thing in the morning in Newcastle because it was the cheapest option. This is back in the mid nineties. I thought I was quite innovative at the time to um, well not being able to drive. I'm still very I'm vulnerable to. Public transport mishaps. I, I got booked to do a gig in Southampton. I thought, perfect, five minutes walk from the train station. I got on the train to Plymouth, and like so, in the end, it took me. I left my workplace at five, and I didn't get to the gig in Southampton till nine p.m. So I took like nearly five hours mm-hmm. to get travel what should have been an hour and it's just like like what other I guess there are lots of industries where you drive around but I don't think there's so much propensity for going wrong or getting lost in other jobs yeah because you have to be from city centre to city centre don't you and then you have to um, sometimes drive through the night and sometimes uh, you have to um, uh, 
you know do double ups and things like that. So it's 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 not really conducive to um, to uh, you know handy drives and handy handy uh, rail stops like it would be going to to do a salesperson's job or something like that. Especially the, like the nicer gigs tend to sometimes be outside the town where they got a more up for it audience. Because if you if you're the only show in town in a village in the middle of nowhere, I don't know, outside Banbury or something, you're gonna mm. sell out. Whereas less competition. I always find it strange though with, with like particularly comedians that travel to London. I've had I've acts instead of uh, like so he could get his train. I had an act. He pretended to take a phone call, which meant he had to run off the stage. And I was like, well, why didn't he just cut his set a bit short? And I've had a, a, a comedian who. He was worried about his parking. Uh, his parking was going to expire. So instead of just doing less jokes, he, he did his set faster. I actually spoke faster. It's like... Oh. <laughs> uh, I suppose we, we all think of mad things like that because I suppose we're stressed, really. I did a double up on Friday and as it happens, I had loads of time. But at, at the time, I was thinking of... I had me caught on a chair ready to pick up next uh. to the stage. We've done that before, <laughs> haven't we? Get all this stuff and gather it and just quickly walk out rather than have to have... I'll, I'll always leave my glasses by and have to run back in a fluster oh, like an idiot. Really? <laughs> is, that, is, that a, is that a common thing, glasses? It is. It, I've heard lots of people leaving their glasses at places, yeah. yeah. So do you have a, a most memorable couple of calls to the comedy results that you can, you can think of? Just yours, Rodas, just, just your calls. Uh, no, um, a few, yeah, um... Ro Campbell rang up once to explain about there being a fate on the bus. Yes, um, that was one of the uh, first the episode Really? <laughs> yeah, yeah, that was a that was a good one. Uh, I, did, I did enjoy that. Um, Rob Mulholland rang once and it was in a hotel room and the bloke was banging on the wall telling me to um, <laughs> telling me to shut up. So I had to end the show that night. That was a, that was a memorable one. Um, there was. Um, Didn't you go downstairs and? Grass him up to reception. Yeah, I, that did, was yeah, I certainly did. I, I said that um, somebody was making a noise last night. Kept banging on me wall. <laughs> I thought that was the only way I could do this. Yeah, that was in a hotel in Holiday Inn in Crawley. I think, you, I think you referred to him as "shut the fuck up next door." <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. That's uh, and this, they said that. Well, I can't. He says um, sometimes people bang on the wall because um, they're trying to shut you up because they've got kids. I went. Well, he was just banging on me wall. And he said. He said, well, don't, there seems to be just be a couple in that room. I'll tell him when I see him. I went, no, please do, yes. I thought it was my own last act of defiance on him, you know. Um, there's been a few. There was Roscoe McClelland, who I found out it, it was him originally. He pretended to be this quite um, um, bigoted Protestant comic from Northern Ireland, even though he's got a, it was a terrible Northern Irish accent. He, he, because we had Michael Legg and Lee Kale on the show, and I always take the piss out of Lee for being a Catholic, even though there's not like it's not a big sectarian thing in the northeast. I always do it. We always do it when we do a football show. And Michael Legg was on. He always jokes about things like, about Christianity and all that. So Roscoe McClellan rang up and pretended he was a, a staunch Protestant comedian, um, and that was funny because I knew it was a wind up, but I don't, I couldn't work out who it was. But he just told me the other week it was him. And there's a few of us. Somebody rang up asking for a job, but I think that was a wind-up one as well. And then somebody the other week pretended to be Jeremy Bates, the former um, uh, British number one tennis player of the 1980s. Right, I think I heard it. I just didn't know who that was, so yeah, I, I, it didn't make any sense to me. I was like... sure who that was as well, and, and I almost believed it for a while. But I went onto YouTube and, 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 and caught 
and saw a little bit of Jeremy Bates being interviewed back in the day and there was no way it tallied up with that accent because it was a broad, brummy accent this bloke had. <laughs> and he was from Solihull. He'd done his research, like, um, and I thought it, it was him because I'd, I was taking the piss out of him. And he said, oh, little birdie says you've been slagging me off. <laughs> I think we should probably wrap up in a second, but I really want to know about Felton Out and the... Because the, the, you're involved in running that collective, or... You just yeah, yeah, perform yeah, that? yeah, I'm involved with Felton Out. I'm not the main person, but I'm one of the directors, but uh, I'm not the... It's about, about eight of us, seven or eight of us who are active on that. But I'm, I'm one of them, yes. Because I first became aware when I was stuck in my house during the New Year lockdown, wanting something to watch. I watched one of the big comedy clubs' live streams, and despite the fact they're all television names, I thought it was dreadful because it was just comics sitting in their bedrooms. I thought, mm-hmm. this is just depressing. What has this art form become? And then I sort of felt now, and you're all standing up in what looked like an actual comedy club. And yeah. it was the closest thing to being in an actual comedy club that I could do from my living room because I stuck it on my big screen and the front row were on Zoom so the compare could actually do crowd work. Yeah, yeah. And I thought the amount of effort that's gone into this compared to just sit... Because I couldn't bear to do any of the online gigs because I said, I don't want to sit in front of my webcam. Yeah, I do that at work. That's my day job. Comedy is yeah. about escapism and fun for me. So, so is it, were those the first Felton Out gigs and then once things were opened up again, you were then in real rooms? Yeah, they were the, well, they were the online ones. We did a few online ones. We did a couple of corporates, but that was the big one at New Year. And then, uh, and then obviously, we're, we're back in the real rooms now. Touch wood, I hope. There isn't going to be another lockdown, but... Uh Oh, but it's deja vu, isn't it? Like, I've got an intended, depending sense of dread, but I'm just avoiding the news to save me getting too fed up about things. Yeah, I'm the same. I, uh, you know, hope grim times on the head, but you don't know, do you? But presuming things carry on as they are now, what's the plan for Felt now? We'll, we'll just open more clubs and open more nights and put more nights on. Hopefully, um, we've got we've got a, a great um, a great night in uh, Whitley Bay regularly. That's where that's a big one. But we've got lots and lots and lots of other monthly nights and. Um, Collectively, they come to a lot of different nights, but we've got a weekly club in Whitley Bay Friday and Saturday night, Laurels. That's a that's our main place. Oh, amazing. Well, thanks for chatting to me, Gavin. Uh, anything else you, you want to plug before we for wind? Um, I've got a book coming out in hopefully January called Buddhism and Other Such Rubbish. But you know, watch this space. Oh, fantastic. Cheers, Gavin. Thank you, Rodas. Cheers, man. This is the Stand and Deliver Comedy Podcast. So that was Gavin Webster. Do check out the comedy results if you're up late on a Saturday from midnight, broadcast from laybys and service stations around the country uh, at the Gavin Webster on on Twitter, um, and he's also um, and also check out Felt Nout F E L T N O W T uh, if you're looking for some great gigs to go watch around the northeast. Right, I suppose it's about time I told you what's coming up at the Stand and Deliver Comedy Club. The next show is scheduled to be on. Thursday, January the 20th. It's nearly that time again. It's nearly the new year. And our headliner is going to be Carl Donnelly. He'll be uh, walking into that cinema screen to entertain you. He's a fantastic comic if you haven't seen him. Uh, An award winner, a real globetrotter of a comic. Very unique, quirky sort of delivery. 
quite hard to sum up other than say other than by saying um just go watch him you, you won't regret it and i will be comparing so that'll be fun and we've got some excellent support acts including uh, matt rouse and katie price it's going to be a fantastic fun show and don't take my word for it the last one was brilliant we've got some lovely reviews uh, written about it so on our, on our google page so yeah that does really help actually particularly as we've uh, moved venues recently to being out of the cold uh, do write us a review on our Google business profile if you Google the Stand and Deliver Comedy Club we pop up uh, join the uh, uh, lovely people who have written nice reviews on that and uh, I'd be very very grateful if you do that uh, so and uh, yeah the, the, half the tickets have already sold for uh, January the 20th so people are really keen it's a wonderful venue uh, so if you want to come buy a ticket now is my advice obviously if the government do decide that uh, fun is uh, no longer permissible and uh, they shut the thing down obviously uh, I will refund you <laughs> uh, but yeah but as far as I'm concerned uh, the show must go on and we've also started selling tickets for our February and March show as well so if you want to get ahead of everything and uh, book and that also reminds me coming up to Christmas just around the corner are you still struggling to know what to buy people gifts can be really difficult they've probably got all the if if you've lived more than about five years you've probably been stomach can't you uh but if you're struggling to buy a gift why not give someone the gift of laughter with our wonderfully good value stand and deliver comedy club gift vouchers all you need to do go to standanddelivercomedy.com click gift vouchers uh, sign up pay and uh, they will get emailed straight to you as a snazzy pdf uh, as a snazzy pdf that you can just forward to them and uh, yeah and, they, and it's valued for a whole six months so uh, they should get to uh, use it. Um, it it's always a bit unfair when vouchers only work for a couple of days um, and it seems like a bit of a con but these are, ma- are valid for a whole half a year uh, because we we re- it's not just about making money off the gift vouchers of course that is half the point but we really want to introduce comedy to people who haven't been before who haven't been to the club uh, we always want people to join our family of regulars because they're lovely uh, but sometimes they need a night off so the more people that come to the comedy club the merrier all uh, right that's pretty much it uh, for my gigs just go to uh, rodders.com r-h-o-d-d-e-r-s.com and click on gigs all my performances will be listed there and as always standanddelivercomedy.com for all your stand and deliver comedy club needs and uh, you know what share this podcast and write it a nice review I'll see you uh, the next time I can be bothered to make one of these things cheers cheers